Welcome to episode 16 of the Philosopher Science Podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing K.W. Schulz about the Open HPC Community Project, which are a set of building blocks for HPC systems. Hi, Carl. Thank you for being with us today. Could you please introduce yourself and explain some of your recent research projects related to HPC? Sure. Hi, David and Patrick. Thanks a lot for having me on. Um, in terms of introducing myself, uh, my background perhaps mimics a number of folks who got into HPC uh, in that I was sucked in from the application side of things. Uh, I'm actually an aerospace engineer by training, uh, and in particular, uh, I come from a background of doing numerics and computational fluid dynamics, and in that area, I was really a consumer of HPC systems, uh, so much like many of the application scientists that we try to support on our HPC systems today. And as Linux clustering took off, I actually ended up getting uh, a bit more into the system side of things and starting to interface with system software and doing software architecture and hardware architecture. And I was uh, very fortunate enough in my career to get to experience a number of challenges at scale, uh, in particular with working with a diverse scientific workload when I was at the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Uh, and previously, uh, I uh, led the HPC group there. More recently, I've been working with the Open HPC project, and I've actually been fortunate to be with it since the beginning. And I use it as a resource computing platform for a variety of work uh, that we do here at the University of Texas. Uh, so things like multi-physics modeling, uh, machine learning, computational fluid dynamics, you know, a number of, of the standard things that many of us in scientific computing are interested in. It seems that most of your research currently revolves around HPC. Uh, we looked a bit at your Google Scholar page. Where does the open HPC community fits into all of this? Well, where um, OpenHPC fits in for me, uh, you know, if you're in the business of doing parallel computing and scientific computing, which uh, I have been uh, throughout my career, um, you know, one of the things that you always need from a development perspective is you need a performant HPC environment to start with. And as I say, coming from the application background, uh, that's kind of how I got into this is that many times myself and colleagues were debugging uh, system itself, you know, as opposed to debugging our science codes. And one of the things that, um, you know, we're trying to do with the OpenHPC community project is really to provide a, a reproducible environment that has a lot of the common software building blocks that you need when you're doing uh, HPC uh, development. So I find myself using HPC more and more in the capacity of putting it onto systems that we're using for doing our own research. So at the Research Institute uh, where I'm at now, we have uh, probably six or seven different clusters that all run OpenHPC, and it gives us a, a familiar environment where all of the researchers can have access to the same tools. We know that the tools work together uh, with each other. Um, and so that makes it nice for us. And uh, we can just install those from a community effort as opposed to having to, to build all that software in-house. Another area where I think OpenHPC uh, fits in from a research perspective is, you know, we're, we're trying to foster new software development as it comes out into the community as well. So for, for folks who are actually in the business of creating software that might be relevant for HPC uh, system deployments, we hope that OpenHPC can be an avenue for them to actually get that software out into a known environment. And, you know, having also been involved in developing you know, software uh, to help optimize MPI stacks and the like. Uh, I know that a lot of times people who are developing that kind of software, they're also in the business of debugging people's systems. So we hope that by having a, a community effort like OpenHPC, that we benefit not just users, but also uh, new software developers who are trying to roll out their software into an HPC system because they know the environment in which it's going to be installed. And they know that all the other bits and pieces are working together. What are the short and long-term goals of the open HPC community? Well, I would say, you know, there's there's one certainly ongoing goal, which is both short and long-term that is really important for the community effort. And that has to do with keeping current with the developments in the upstream community and to continue to grow the software stack. You know, as you know, one of the... Uh, 
the things that is is so powerful of the open source community is that it has a very rapid development cycle. And I think that's particularly true in high performance computing. Uh, and also when you combine that fact with the continuous rollout of uh, products from uh, HPC vendors in terms of new CPU, uh, new accelerators, new interconnects, um, all of that combined means that it's really important to uh, stay current with the uh, upstream software. And so one of the things that is important for us it's just to constantly uh, evolve the software stack, make sure we are releasing new versions of all of the existing components, and also to have an avenue to take on uh, new components that are important for the community. When we started, we really sort of picked components that were standard, you know, sort of standard in traditional HPC, but uh, we have uh, over time expanded that to include new developments. Certainly in the last couple of years, uh, containerization has, has really grown in popularity, and that's an example uh, in the OpenHPC community where we've, we've adopted those types of technologies pretty early on. Okay. In which way do you try to, let's say, keep your ears on the ground to hear what's coming? What what are your information channels to know where to focus for the next few years? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we have a couple of different ways that we try to interact with the community. Number one, we're just really fortunate that we have a number of members associated with the project, whether they be on a technical steering committee or on the governing board. But they are, you know, they are tried and true HPC people um, who are, you know, in some case, they're vendors, so they can uh, inform us to new technology that's coming out. In other cases, they're on the software side, and they can inform us there. But part of the, you know, the, the benefit of really getting together as a collaborative project is that we can take that input from, from a number of different people and from a different points of view, you know, both vendors, academics, national labs, you know, we have we have pretty good contacts with all of those because a number of them are directly associated uh, with the community. Also, just as the project has um, sort of grown, you know, we've we've been fortunate that people will reach out to us and let us know uh, when when there's a new interesting development in some particular bit of software. And also, we have a mechanism by which people can request new software, and that's really the way. I would say over the last two years that we have um, grown the stack. So there is a there's a, a way by which anybody in the community can uh, request new software components. And on a quarterly basis, uh, the technical steering committee reviews those. And that's how we get new technology in or new software. Maybe it might be older software, but just something that, that hasn't been part of OpenHPC yet, but might be relevant to the broader OpenHPC community. That's how uh, we get that in. So we really rely on a couple of things. One is, you know, input and requests from the user community. And the other is from all of our project partners who are involved and have a, a vested interest in seeing the community do well. Uh, they, they let us know what's coming down the pipe as well. Okay. So where does it fit in comparison to other projects such as EasyBuild, Singularity Containers, CROX cluster distribution or the Nix package manager? Well, I think uh, OpenHPC hopefully, you know, can... Um, fit in with all of those packages. You mentioned a couple uh, in terms of singularity. Singularity is one of the containerization strategies that we uh, adopted early on. Um, in fact, the, well, the lead author of singularity was on our technical steering committee uh, in the first year of existence. So that's an example where, um, you know, it's something that can work very nice within the OpenHPC environment, uh, and people can install Singularity from OpenHPC and then go off and leverage the huge amount of infrastructure and, and uh, community knowledge associated just with Singularity, where they can pull in Singularity containers and run them within uh, the resource manager for perhaps provided by OpenHPC. Uh, same idea with EasyBuild. Uh, EasyBuild is also something that is part of OpenHPC, has been since the beginning. And I really see things like EasyBuild and uh, SPAC as being nice ways to augment uh, your OpenHPC environment. You know, there are very strong communities for both of those um, packages that can leverage uh build semantics for installing software that's not available in OpenHPC. And I really think that's where, you know, the combination can be quite powerful. Hopefully, we're doing a reasonable job on the OpenHPC side of providing a common stack of building blocks that are relevant to, you know, a large 
fraction of the HPC community. But if somebody has a particular community application, you know, an open source community application, for example, um, they can leverage uh, Easy Build or SPAC to add that into their open HPC environment uh, and run that locally. So I think that combination is is pretty powerful. I will say, you know, we designed OpenHPC to be very building block oriented. So, you know, it, it's not really an all or nothing type of uh, situation if you'd like to use it. So in that regard, we hope that it, it really can play nicely with other cluster management toolkits. You know, there's certainly nothing uh, wrong with someone uh, deploying a rock system, and perhaps they want to grab some of the new GCC compilers and some of the linear algebra packages that are available in OpenHPC. They can pull that into their rocks environment. And, you know, we've tried very hard to make it pretty flexible so that people can use it in any type of environment. And I would say, you know, that was part of our motivation early on was to develop a system that would, you know, sort of appeal to a wide uh, HPC audience. You know, if you've, if you've been in the business of, of deploying large systems, you've, you've invested heavily in your particular way to manage that system. And you probably have your favorite provisioner, your favorite configuration management system. And, you know, we didn't think from the open HPC side that if we just picked one of those that we would make everybody happy. So we tried to design uh, the system so that people could just really pull in packages and dependencies as needed and that that way they could leverage it in their existing environments or if they wanted to have a complete solution end-to-end for a bare metal cluster that we actually do have the software that allows them to stand up uh, an entire system from scratch. Okay, so you try to be as collaborative as possible with the rest of the community. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we really benefit from all of the hard work uh, from the upstream uh, developers for all the software that's in OpenHPC and also, you know, the other uh, packaging efforts that are within the HPC community. And we really want to, to try to collaborate as best we can. You know, one of the, the reasons for, for all of these projects, frankly, is because You know, HPC software development moves very quickly, and also developers have pretty unique needs that sometimes fall outside of the typical uh, distro view of, of uh, software installation. In particular, if you think about the standard distro, for the most part, you only install one version of a package at a time, um, whereas in HPC particularly compilers and MPI stacks, maybe even a number of numerical libraries, our users are, are very used to needing a specific version, maybe to access some particular bug fix or uh, because they have verified their software. We shouldn't shortchange the importance of software ver verification. You know, that's an important reason why some of our HPC users really want to um, lock down the version of the software that we're using. So, Things like OpenHPC, uh, EasyBuild, SPAC, you know, we're all trying to help uh, really support the HPC users and give them, you know, the power to sort of control their own destiny in terms of installing the software stack that they need. Okay. Uh, just to set up a line, at which point does a cluster or a group of computer nodes become large enough to be considered as HPC? That's an interesting question. Um, you, you might be looking for, you know, a physical node count of, you know, 50 nodes or a thousand nodes or 10,000 nodes. Um, but I will say in, in my experience, you know, particularly in academia, you know, we're used to using very large systems at, at supercomputing sites around the world. And those are typically in the thousands uh, to 10,000s. No doubt that's an HPC system. But I actually think given the interactions that I've had with, you know, faculty Um, at a number of different institutions, actually even small clusters, I think from the perspective of needing software that comes out of a project like OpenHPC, I would, I would even treat them as HPC clusters as well. It might be as small as, you know, four nodes, 10 nodes, uh, even, even 20 nodes. And the reason for that, in my mind, is what's more important is the type of workflow that's going to be carried out on that system. And for me, you know, HPC means parallel computing. And so the instant you need to do distributed memory with MPI, for example, you know, that puts certain requirements on the system. Um, if you're leveraging a high-speed interconnect, 
you know, you, you need a stack and drivers that work on that high-speed interconnect. And that's independent of whether the system is two nodes or thousands of nodes. And in some sense, while there's certainly extra work that comes into fine-tuning and scaling a very large network, a lot of the software work in terms of building all the software, making it work with a resource manager, you know, a lot of that effort is kind of at the same level whether you have a small cluster or a very large cluster. So I, I actually think, you know, as opposed to saying a node count, it's more around workflow. And I think uh, the instant someone needs to do parallel computing and they want to leverage a workload manager like Slurm or PBS Professional, and they need a lot of scientific software to go along with a, a rich development environment, I think to me that's kind of what makes an HPC system. And that's really the sweet spot that we're trying to target with OpenHPC. Okay, so even for low node counts, you think OpenHPC is beneficial for for just the, the, the workflow it brings to the table? I think so. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, it's also, I see I see that use case uh, on, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, and you think about the academic environment, you know, a lot of faculty um, are wanting to do application development research, but they want to have their own cluster uh, to do that at small scale so that they can, um, you know, do it on demand. Uh, and uh, some of them are also doing research and middleware, in which case they need to mess with the system software. But we get a lot of requests where, you know, faculty might be standing up a 20 node cluster, but they still, you know, they still need all the same things we need on, on the large systems that exist at the labs and at supercomputing centers worldwide. And they don't really know necessarily where to start. And, uh, you know, another sort of interesting fact in that area is that, uh, you know, at least in academia, they might go to their local uh, IT support who, who, you know, certainly has familiarity with managing lots of systems, but it's more as sort of the workstation level or managing Windows systems, for example. So, you know, there's certainly cases where they don't have the, the background and expertise to stand up even a small HPC system. And so you see a lot of people making the same mistakes over and over and over. And that's something that we, we really wanted to try to tackle when spinning up the community effort was to, to try to give folks who, who may not have even built a, a small cluster before, um, you know, give them some some best practices and the, all the software that they would need to at least get a, a basic working system uh, up and running and not have to go through the same trials and tribulations that unfortunately many of us did when we were younger. Okay. So you mentioned the Slurm and PBS Professional Workload Manager. So is it possible to install third-party libraries or proprietary software within OpenHPC? Yes, uh, it, it certainly is. Um, so we do have, uh, today we have builds for the two workload managers that you just mentioned. But, you know, if, if those aren't your particular favorites there, and there are certainly others that are out there, um, there's nothing preventing uh you from uh, downloading, uh, whether it's open source or proprietary software, uh, downloading that and installing it on your system locally. Uh, we really haven't done anything to uh, prevent that, nor would we want to. I would say, you know, one of the things we've tried to do in OpenHPC is really try to organize all of the software install uh, into uh, sort of a central location as much as possible. Uh, I think uh, certainly all the development tools um, abide by that, and they live in opt uh, OH. HPC. Some of the administrative tools aren't really relocatable, so they get installed into uh, standard Linux paths. But, you know, we certainly know that uh, there, are, there are plenty of folks who are installing SGE on their system and other workload managers, and um, we certainly encourage that and, and support that. In terms of proprietary software, you know, we we're in OpenHPC, we have an end-to-end -end workload that is open source. Uh, we think that's very important uh, and have really, you know, strived to make that end-to-end. -end. Uh, of course, we know in HPC that there are certainly, it's very common to use some proprietary software, particularly around compilers and math libraries in order to optimize performance against a particular CPU architecture that you might be deploying. So while you know, we, we can't provide proprietary software. One of the things that we do just to, to help support the HPC environment is we provide some compatibility with some of the proprietary compilers. And um, we, we will do builds with some of the key development libraries, leveraging uh, their math libraries that are provided by uh, the proprietary tools. And so people can obtain those tools themselves, install a compatibility shim that comes from OpenHPC, and then they can also install a bunch of uh, third-party 
already open source packages that work and have been tested with those proprietary uh, tool chains. So we checked our your website and why is OpenHPC only available for Red Hat, CentOS 7 and SUSE Enterprise Linux 12 and not more recent distributions like Fedora, Ubuntu or even Debian? Yep, good question. Just kind of going back to the history of, of the project and how it was uh, uh, sort of came to be. Um, going back to 2015, we had a birds of a feather session at ISC in Germany where uh, we got some folks together to sort of talk about the idea of, you know, perhaps starting a project like OpenHPC. We didn't know what it would be called at the time, but just, you know, whether folks would be interested in the merits of that. And one of the things we discussed at that point was, well, you know, if we were to do this, what distributions would be sort of, you know, how would we prioritize which distributions to focus on? And at the time, the uh, the feedback that we got well, and certainly matching the use cases that we see in HPC uh, today is that, um, you know, there's an awful lot of traction for RHEL and CentOS. And that uh, so if you were to do one, you definitely would like to do that one. And also traction, um, particularly in Europe, for SLES. And so if you were to do another one, uh, that that would be the next one to take. And that's really sort of why we chose those two up front. We do get asked periodically around and things like Fedora and Ubuntu. And, you know, I will say that we we purposefully chose a, a build system that we leveraged for our, our backend builds that could support uh, those uh, different distributions. But when, you know, there is a bit of a catch-22 because uh, a lot of the system vendors, you know, who are focusing on interconnects and perhaps uh, parallel file system clients, you know, they really... Uh, aren't necessarily providing uh, those builds for these other distributions like Ubuntu, and so you know we we've we've yet to do those. Um, and when people ask us, uh, you know, hey, what uh, would you consider doing it? When we sort of ask a little bit more, at least in the cases where we've been able to get more information, and we kind of try to find out what people are doing, a lot of times they they really want to use uh, that particular distro because they can get access to some particular software stack that they like. And nine times out of ten, at least. When uh, when I've asked about this, it's often for a workload that runs on a single node. And in that case, you know, we usually try to point people to, hey, there there are these great containerization strategies available. And you know, if you're trying to support your favorite biology user who likes to use Ubuntu and wants to, you know, install some particular software package under Ubuntu, that using a container strategy, whether it be Docker or Singularity or Charlie Cloud, makes a lot of sense, and that you can, you know, that would be an easy way to support that on your HPC environment. That at the bottom might be CentOS or SLES. So it's really sort of a getting back to the initial question. It's it's um, sort of really a prioritization. I mean, it certainly takes an awful lot to spin up builds for uh, multiple distros. I will say I, I very much have a new appreciation for the amount of work that uh, the folks who maintain distros and, and put them out. Um, I, I have an appreciation for all the work that they have to do. You know, we are not doing as much in OpenHPC for sure, but we're doing, you know, sort of a small subset of, of very similar effort. And it's it's a remarkable undertaking. Um, and, you know, it sort of scales with the more distros you add. Um, obviously, you have to do no more builds, but we also do an awful lot of, of testing of all of our builds on a bare metal environment. And so it sort of explodes uh, the combinatorial amount of tests that we would have to do. So that's really the reasoning thus far is it just hasn't been as high priority. And, and that's because we just don't see as much usage in, in HPC. Which CPU architecture is supported by uh, OpenHPC? Today, the architectures that we're uh, supporting and doing builds against are for 64-bit uh, x86 and ARM. When we checked the website, you were supporting x68 and I think Arch64, but you were not supporting any PowerPC packages. And I think if you look at the new Summit cluster, it's running on Power9 systems. So why are you not supporting PowerPC architecture for OpenHPC? Yeah, that's really just a kind of a reflection of, you know, the membership that we have today. Initially, the, the architecture vendors uh, that uh, joined the project, you know, were, were Intel and, and ARM. And so uh, we have been doing builds against those. Hopefully down the line, you know, we'll, we'll get more architecture uh, vendors interested, and we would expand that to include other architecture of interest. In, in terms of the PowerPC question, 
we are not rolling out builds directly for those, but we have actually uh, one of our members of our technical steering committee in the past uh, actually did do a full build of all of the packages for PowerPC uh, just to, to make sure that we could get everything built. And so there, we did land some patches to support that. Um, so, you know, hopefully should that come to pass in the future, we'll be able, we'll be in a good position to roll out builds for uh, another architecture as well. Okay, on your website, we found next to these tools we were previously discussing, the community is also developing best practices. Can you explain how to define these practices? And do you want to have any kind of standard for the open HPC or HPC world with this kind of documents? Well, you know, we've been careful not to use the word standard, or at least we try to be careful to not use the word standard. And, you know, to be, to be certainly clear, we have not, we're not trying to behave as a standards body. Uh, I think a number of us sort of felt that, uh, you know, for the project to be successful, uh, we, we certainly want to roll out best practices and leverage the expertise from a number of folks uh, who have built big systems and even small systems. Uh, but, you know, We, ha we wanted to be careful not to say that there was only one way to do something. And when you start to go down uh, the road of, of a standards body, you know, it's, it's hard to avoid something like that. So um, what, from encoding best practices, you know, part of what we mean is, you know, trying to give tips to the user for how to do certain things that might be common. Um, so an example might be, uh, let's say they're setting up a, uh, a workload manager and, you know, perhaps they've, they've chosen the Slurm uh, workload manager. You know, we have a number of different recipes that people can choose from and we, we validate those recipes end to end on bare metal systems. You know, and that's kind of an example right there is we were doing uh, recipes for different distros. That means interacting with a different package manager. We're doing it with different architectures. We're doing it with different uh, versions of some key components. So in particular, we have different recipes depending on the choice of provisioner an insight might make, also on the workload manager that an insight might make. And, uh, you know, where appropriate, we try to sprinkle in some some best case uh, examples of additional things that site might want to do. So in the case of Slurm, for example, we will document, hey, if you would like to lock down uh, your nodes from SSH uh, to only restrict it to, to folks who have an active job, here's how to enable a particular Slurm PAM, um, a, a, a PAM module that accesses Slurm so that you can restrict SSH access. So a lot of sites do that. Um, but, you know, we didn't make it necessarily default. So we advertise that as, as a best practice that is, is a good thing to do. Um, similarly, around uh, cleaning up a, a node after a, a job has been executed in terms of cleaning up uh, shared memory pages and the like, we, we try to encapsulate some of those best practices as well. Why do you think open source software became so important in the HPC community? I think it is, it's become so important for a couple of reasons. You know, one is uh, that, you know, a, a lot of the key software that has been developed over the years, you know, has been contributed to, you know, has benefited from contribution by a large number of folks. And the funding model was such that uh, it, it really lended itself to open source. And, you know, it's really become production level software. You know, when when I've been involved in deploying uh, big systems, we've done you know multiple top ten systems. You know, the huge vast amount of the software is is open source. You know, ninety plus percent is easily open source, and I think you know part of what has contributed that is the, the quality of, of the open source software in general. And, you know, that's not necessarily restricted to HPC. I mean, this is, this is really one of the benefits of, of doing open source software in general, I think, is that, um, you know, under the right circumstances, you get a very high quality product. Um, and also, I think what has really made it important for HPC is that just because things move so fast, both in terms of the hardware architecture and the software environment, it has allowed sites to really be able to sort of control their own destiny and fix their own problems. And, and I really think that's another uh, strong point of open source. And, and I've experienced this many times in the past, you know, when we needed a driver for some particular interconnect, you know, we want to install a new kernel. 
well, the vendor doesn't provide the drivers for that particular kernel, but that particular kernel they do provide drivers for has a known security exploit, right? You're in a you're in this catch twenty two situation, um, and if you have access to the source, you know at least you have the capability to try to rectify that particular situation itself. And at least in my experience, you know it, it's been the difference between being able to deploy a system and put it into production to versus not being able to do that. Uh, and I think that's really uh, another key reason. Is just that gives people access to collaborate and fix their own problems. Okay, and from the side of science, do you think that more open code allow, allow for better science? I certainly do. I'm not an unbiased participant, <laughs> though, of course, uh, being in academia. But you know, I'm I'm a, a huge fan of, of open source, and I think the transparency that it provides, um, the reproducibility, which is you know starting to, it, it's been around for for a while in science, but is certainly gaining more traction in more fields of science. You know, I think this reproducibility aspect is is really just a key, and there's really no good way to accommodate that if if the codes that you're operating on uh, are not open source. So yeah, I really don't see a downside for science. Okay. When speaking about reproducibility, do you think that open source software can lead to consistent and reproducible results across heterogeneous computing environments? Uh, well, the heterogeneous part is obviously uh, makes it uh, a little more difficult, um, and you know we have to we have to be a little bit uh, careful talking about uh, pure reproducibility. Obviously, even just you know compiling one code. And, and moving it from one architecture to the next, even if the software is identical, you know, there are, there are floating point opti optimizations that are made there. If you're doing uh, parallel computing, there are collective operations that are made such, you know, that we, we can't just say that the answers are exactly necessarily going to be the same bit for bit. However, from a machine precision uh, point of view and being able to reproduce going from one system to another, absolutely, I think it is important and, and does greatly enhance uh, reproducibility. Um, and, you know, this is, is something we've seen for, you know, people who invest huge amounts of of effort and development of a, of a large scientific code. And it's it's not unheard of for, for people to you know, invest, you know, many, many hundreds of man years into an application code that's going to live, you know, across multiple generations of an HPC system. So there's a lot of investment in those. And being able to replicate exactly one run from a software perspective, uh, from one version to another, one architecture to another, we think is, is very important. And, you know, that's one of the things we also sort of strive to provide for folks by, by having, you know, multiple architectures and a similar environment that, that we provide on those architectures, we're hoping that this is one of the benefits of OpenHPC. So, for example, if you stood up an ARM cluster today and you stood up an x86 cluster using the OpenHPC packages, from an end-user perspective, uh, once you log into that system and you start uh, interacting with the compilers and all of the numerical tools uh, and the performance analysis tools, you know, they're, they're identical in terms of your interaction with them. So uh, we hope that that promotes uh, portability and being able to move more seamlessly from one system to another as well. So do you think that we will be able to do HPC without proprietary software, for example, drivers in future? I would like to say that uh, wearing my open source hat and being pro open source, I'd like to say, of course, we can do it. But, you know, will, will that happen? Um, I, I perhaps might be a little more pessimistic. And, you know, to be fair, I've also spent time, you know, uh, working in industry and, you know, they have a, a tough challenge on their hands as well as they're rolling out new hardware. You know, they really want to be able to try to provide drivers that maximize performance for a particular new hardware architecture. And one of the challenges they've often faced, for example, is, you know, all things being equal from, from, the end user perspective for those of us who might be standing up systems, we'd like those drivers just to be upstreamed open source and just install them from the distro, right? But the time uh, lag associated with something getting, finding its way to upstream and actually making the distro and being released, unfortunately, you know, that, that time frame does not match with how fast new hardware comes out. And so, you know, I do understand that that is 
that is problematic. But I am encouraged by the fact that, you know, certainly a lot more vendors, while they might not be able to get their drivers upstreamed uh, immediately, that they are releasing them open source. Uh, so uh, I will I will say hopefully this is the case, but I, I won't be surprised, uh, unfortunately, if, if it doesn't come to fruition for all drivers that we're interested in. But that's a case where the community can have impact. You know, if you're you're buying systems from a particular vendor and you feel very strongly that it's important to have uh, the drivers open source, you should, you know, certainly echo your feelings to uh, that particular vendor. Okay, so right now, cloud services for HPC are coming up so people do not have their own cluster. So they're acquiring sources from some vendors, for example, Amazon or Google. Is there any progress or intentions that OpenHPC will address these issues that you can connect it to cloud services or acquire resources on the cloud? Well, we haven't done anything specifically targeting cloud services. Definitely agree that it has obviously um, cloud services have been around for a long time, but we're seeing you know much more interest from the HPC side of things uh, more recently. So we haven't done anything dedicated we haven't done anything specific to target cloud resources, but we have, you know, because OpenHPC has adopted this building block approach, you know, it is fairly easy for folks who are running and standing up, uh, say, a, a cluster in a cloud environment for them to leverage some of the packages in OpenHPC. Obviously, in those cases, they don't necessarily need the bare metal provisioning capabilities of, of some of the software that's in OpenHPC. They're going to be using the provisioning capabilities that are native to the cloud uh, provider that they're running on. However, they might still want to have the same development environment in terms of all of the MPI tools. They might want to have the same resource manager. And in fact, that's what we see um, in terms of usage today for folks who are leveraging OpenHPC in the cloud. That's what we see. They are actually standing up uh, clusters on one of the supported OSs that, that we have builds for, and they, they just pull in the development environment. And then when they log in, it's essentially the same as if it was a bare metal environment that we were installing um, in, in the traditional HPC. So nothing unique, but also... I would say that the design from the get-go is such that it's pretty easy for folks to be able to leverage uh, OpenHPC in the cloud. And there are some of the components that are in OpenHPC which have some cloud uh, capabilities um, specifically unique to them. So, for example, uh, I'm aware of PBS Professional has a cloud-bursting capability. Um, so, you know, there are some of the tools that we have included that have some functionality that, that, that do target uh, cloud usage more directly. But for the most part, we're just trying to make the software available in a way that folks who are standing up uh, HPC types of resources in their favorite uh, cloud provider can take advantage of the building blocks very easily. Okay. We'll switch to the history of the project and its community. You talked previously about a bird of a feather session in 2015, uh, where the idea of OpenHPC came up. Was the idea coming from a general consensus or a single individual brought up the idea at that time? Yeah. Uh, so at that particular birds of a feather session, we we had uh, a number of folks who were involved in that session. So some representing uh, vendors. So uh, Intel at the time I was at Intel, and we had folks from LRZ, a supercomputing center in Germany. I recall some folks from the Texas Advanced Computing Center, uh, which is supercomputing center in the U.S., and uh, a few other folks. Where essentially the the discussion was, hey we're doing a lot of the same kinds of things and it would be nice if there was a community effort that could you know minimize some of that replication and also be an avenue for ingesting new HPC software as it comes along and sort of just have a, a reference uh, version of, of everything. And then, you know, from a vendor perspective, uh, if, you know, they could build things on top of it and try to focus on adding value that they see fit, but, you know, they wouldn't all have to be reproducing the same thing at the same time. So it was, it was multiple people at that time, but it was, you know, comparatively 
a, a smaller group of folks, but but we did get enough interest that you know we sort of thought it would be worthwhile. And then um, uh, so moving on from that birds of a feather session in in uh, at ISC in 2015. Uh, a, a group of folks at Intel put together a, a stab at an initial stack, and we rolled that out at Supercomputing in November of 2015. And then uh, at that, and that's you know we really spent a lot of time on sort of the the nuts and bolts of uh, you know. The, the build infrastructure, the test infrastructure, creating an initial test harness for the stack, um, a taxonomy of how how the packages would be named, and we thought it would be easier really to to get more people involved in the project if we had something specifically that we could point at. So we did release a, a, an initial version at Supercomputing in, in 2015, and then at that point we we gathered more folks, uh, like-minded folks who who thought it was a good idea, sort of building on top of that discussion at the birds of a feather session and we started working with the linux foundation at that point and basically for about six months uh, we worked on uh, designing a project governance for the project and really deciding you know who, who all was interested in being one of the founding members and we actually became a formal collaborative project under the Linux Foundation at ISC in 2016. So that would have been June of 2016. Uh, we rolled out a technical steering committee at that time and a governing board. And I've, I've had the honor of serving as the technical project lead since, uh, since then. Okay. So you mentioned the uh, governing board, the technical steering com committee. Uh, beside that, is there any other structure within the project? How is the... Uh, the community organized within the project beside those two uh, committees? That's the primary uh, governance structure that is associated with the project now. And those are sort of pretty common approaches that other Linux Foundation projects have used. So sort of based on their recommendation uh, and iterating with uh, the members who were interested at the time, that's what we settled upon. Uh, so, so from a governance perspective, that's really what we have today. Uh, the governing board is, is really oriented around uh, sort of long-term, helping with long-term vision and managing uh, budget associated with the project. And the technical steering committee, uh, uh, as you might suspect, you know, handles all of the technical details and, and actually the nuts and bolts of doing releases, interacting with the community. Uh, and, and um, you know, that's, those are our, our two primary governance structures today. Okay. And who is electing the members of the technical steering committee? The way we have set up the technical steering committee is that uh, they're set up to serve on one-year terms. Anybody can volunteer to participate uh, on one of those one-year terms. We do nominations and a call for elections in June of each summer. And then starting on July 1st, we begin a new term. In terms of elections, the way it works is that folks who were on the technical steering committee for the previous year vote on members for the following year but uh, it's absolutely open to anybody you don't need to be you know your institution or your company does not be need to be associated with uh, formally with the linux foundation um, we, we welcome it's open to all so how does a company like red hat which joined the project in 2016 fits into the open source spirit of the project Well, they fit in. I, you know, obviously, I can't speak on behalf of Red Hat, but from my perspective, you know, they fit in nicely in the sense that, um, you know, RHEL and CentOS in particular are so prominent in uh, the HPC community in terms of, uh, you know, distros being used, and so, you know. Since that was one of the the distros that really made a lot of sense, in addition to Slez to to start off with, they fit in nicely uh, because we are building on top of uh, what they are providing in terms of the base OS distribution. You know, and I should say one of the things that we have tried to do from the beginning is leverage as much as we can from the from the base operating system. So you know, we we don't really want to reinstall something or, or reproduce it if it's in the base OS and it is functional from the perspectives from the perspective of what we need from an HPC usage case. So we leverage a lot of what the distro is providing. And the other thing why it's been really helpful to have members on our technical steering committee from both Red Hat and SUSE is that they have a tremendous amount of experience for rolling out a distribution. So in fact, one of our contributing members from Red Hat 
he has really helped us in terms of organizing a lot of our build procedures and uh, sort of we do everything with RPM. So we have spec files and he, he really helped out in the beginning to sort of um, standardize a lot of what we were doing and centralize a lot of things that we were reproducing uh, in multiple cases at the beginning. So it's been very helpful from the community perspective to have access to those kinds of folks because they've just been doing distros for for a long time. And hopefully, I think they see benefit from it uh, because uh, they know that we're trying to leverage as much as we can from their particular base operating system. And then we're adding on top of it in a way that, you know, we're not we're not overriding things that they have installed. And also, you know, something else that we've spent an awful lot amount of time on. And I will confess we didn't get it right uh, initially, but we've iterated multiple times. But we try very hard to make sure that we don't introduce any false dependencies in terms of package management to what the distro is doing. So everything that uh, an end user might install from OpenHPC is self-contained. Uh, where we need something from the base operating system, that dependency uh, will certainly leverage. But everything else we install, it doesn't conflict with anything that comes from the operating system, and it doesn't provide any false dependencies. So if they want to install other packages from the operating system, you know, there won't be any kind of weird convolution of packaging between what we're doing in OpenHPC and what the distro is doing. So I think hopefully they see that as a benefit because it's certainly possible that you could run into confusing situations. In fact, we have encountered this in the past, which is why we've iterated on it a couple of times. But uh, I think with the current versions that we have, it, we, we, we try very hard, and I think we've, we've mostly covered all of our bases to make sure that packages that come from OpenHPC are, are not going to do uh, any harm or, or cause any confusion with respect to what is coming from the uh, distro providers. So let's go more in a global view of open source software. What is your vision about Floss and its importance for the openness of science? Well, I think we mentioned one item that I, I think is, is certainly key, which has to do with reproducibility. You know, without open source, it's certainly very difficult to, to, to really have, be transparent and, and reproduce both scientific results that are, are coming out, but also being able to re reproduce them on different architectures. Also, you know, I think that the, you know, another importance that we can never shortchange is just the collaborative nature of open source. I am I'm always constantly amazed at, you know, people's willingness to, to, to put in great work on projects that aren't their own and, you know, that really, really contribute significant amounts of, of intellectual effort or even, you know, just, just helping out doing day-to-day -day things. Um, and, and it really would be impossible if, if it wasn't uh, for the context of open source. So, and, and science, you know, certainly in general uh, needs to be, open as much as possible. I think by, by having open source uh, along with, uh, you know, uh, a rigorous review process for, for folks who are in the business of doing research, you know, it just provides a lot of additional uh, validity to what's coming out in terms of science. Uh, obviously, another key area for open source is security, you know, and I think uh, we have multiple examples where, you know, there's no doubt that, that the security of software over time is improved by having more people look at it. So I, I really think it's it's important for a variety of reasons in terms of transparency, security, reproducibility, and, um, you know, just having a, a larger number of people being able to look at the types of results that people are generating. Okay. Do you think that using floss can have negative impact on science? You know, nothing jumps to mind. I, I, uh, but I'm, I'm also a a huge fan. Um, you know, I, I guess the contrary contrarian view might be uh, that you know you can end up in in things that are somewhat unproductive if if you are doing everything collaboratively in an open uh, environment. Um, you know, we've certainly seen cases where there are flame wars that erupt and, uh, you know, uh, lead developers, uh, just, uh, not, not wanting to work with each other over time. Um, so, you know, there are cases where, where we see negative things, but to be honest, I, I don't think that's unique to whether something is, uh, free and open source or not. Right. I mean, that same type of behavior happens internally in, in companies for closed software too. So, um, I guess in my mind, I, I don't, I wouldn't really count uh, on that. I, I'm sure there are some, some negative benefits, but in my mind, the, the positives so, so vastly outweigh any negatives that, that I could think of that it's 
for from my perspective, there there are no negative impacts. So as we get to the end of this interview, we ask you two questions. We ask all our interviewees, and the first one would be: In recent years, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? Well, I I, I would be hard pressed to say what is the uh, most significant. Uh, how about I throw out one that has an incredible amount of hype that I will put in the the uh, not as significant category. How about we say uh, Bitcoin is not the answer, <laughs> or the blockchain? <laughs> yes, yeah. blockchain in the cloud is the answer. Okay. Um, and finally, your last main question: uh, What is your favorite text processing tool? Well, these this is pretty easy. I, I saw uh, from a from a list of possible options. Oh, you can go out of that list as well. Oh, I could add to that. Well, I, I, this one is easy. So um, uh, I will list two, which are certainly uh, near and dear to my heart. But I, we will go with the first one, which is most near and dear to my heart, which is Emacs. My beloved, beloved, sweet, sweet Emacs. I, I have been using that uh, since I was an undergraduate, and it has never failed me. And then, of course, the other from, you know, doing papers and proposals and the like is uh, LaTeX, which is uh, another go-to. And the combination, of course, Emacs and LaTeX is, you know, that might be the best discovery. Okay, so we are at the end of this interview. Is there anything else you want to share with us? No, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciated uh, the opportunity to tell you guys a little bit about OpenHPC. Thank you very much for your time in this interview. We really enjoyed it. Uh, if any of our listeners want to reach you, uh, what would be your preferred channels of communication? Uh, if folks are interested in the community project, I will just uh, let them know that we have a public mailing list. It's a tremendous resource. It gives me great joy to see so many people helping each other out on our public mailing lists. We also have a Slack channel where I'm on most of the time. Uh, so our GitHub site has a wiki with uh, all of the information on how to access the, the email sites and, and Slack as well. We also have a high-level website at openhpc.community. And uh, for anybody who, who is interested, you should be able to find uh, all of our preferred channels there and uh, all of our project links and uh, be able to download software should you be interested. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. You can help us by recommending our show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is on a new location. We moved it to flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page, where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our episodes or find the RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. For our second episode of our high-performance computing series, we will interview Carola Kaiser about the coastal modeling project STORM. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in your next episode. Bye. Bye.